Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri, Moonshine and Mobsters, The Biltmore Club, 1929-1979. The shrill whistle of the fire alarm brought Dave Mouse, Jefferson County Deputy Fire Chief, to full attention. It was 4.30 a.m. April 18, 1979 and the reported fire was located at the Biltmore Club on Highway 30. By the time the raging inferno was reduced to smoldering ashes, a total of eight local fire stations, including Fenton, High Ridge, Valley Park, Melville, Rock Community, Shady Valley, Eureka, and Springdale had answered the call. There was nothing left of the historic 50-year-old building except the brick chimney and a small part of the outer facade. Further investigation determined that the fire had been caused by arson. The burning of the Biltmore spelled the end of a half-century of boom and bust for the old building, which in its heyday was a gathering place for wealthy, powerful, famous, and infamous alike. It could have easily been used as a setting for F. Scott Fitzgerald's famous novel, The Great Gatsby, and its end was just as tragic. Welcome to another episode of Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County, Missouri. I am your host, Mindy Hudson, genealogist at the Jefferson County Library. Each week we bring you stories of murder, scandal, and interesting happenings throughout the county's 200-year history. Jefferson County lies about 25 miles south of St. Louis in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. The story and reputation of the Biltmore Supper Club, located on the dividing border between St. Louis County and Jefferson County, has been pieced together using the resources available in the library's genealogy department. Newspaper accounts, personal interviews, and other genealogical data tell a story of bootlegging, gambling, mobsters, and corruption. Wealthy clientele from elsewhere loved showing off their riches and power, while local citizens hated the presence of the shady goings-on at their doorstep. On January 16, 1920, the 18th Amendment took effect, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcohol. In its wake came illegally produced liquor, nicknamed Moonshine, since it was manufactured usually under the cover of darkness. Transportation, known as bootlegging, because liquor was hidden in the boots of sellers who brought it to customers. And distribution by the mobsters and gangs. In St. Louis, Egan's Rats, the Hogan Gang, the Cuckoos, and the Green Ones battled over territory and customers. Since Jefferson County was close enough to St. Louis to make transport of the goods quick and efficient and remote enough to easily hide steals, it became a popular place for moonshiners to operate. Many of the local residents supplemented their meager farm income with the secret production of spirits or sale of supplies to those who brewed the liquor. 
some business owners came up with creative ways to advertise the availability of alcohol to their customers. According to local historian Della Lang, Mrs. Murphy, whose general store was located in Rock Township, would prop her broom against the back door of the building to indicate a new supply had arrived. Heavily wooded areas off the main roadways, secret cellars or barns shielded the steels from the eyes of law enforcement officials. Even so, local newspapers gleefully reported the exciting details of raids, along with the embarrassing publication of the names of the allegedly guilty parties. It was less a moral endeavor than an exercise in revenue for the lawmakers. Most defendants were charged a hefty fee and released to rebuild their operation in another area. Another consequential result was the private supper clubs that sprang up across the nation. Advertised as a place for dinner and dancing, they were also, not so secretly, a cover for drinking and gambling. In 1929, Jimmy the Judge Miller, a prominent St. Louis Democratic Party boss from the Fourth Ward, began construction on a lavish place for his posh clientele and spared no expense in the construction and decoration of it. The castle-like architecture and elegant decor drew the famous and infamous alike, and the $250,000 price tag was well worth the investment because during its heyday, the Biltmore Supper Club drew in high-rolling gamblers with diamond and fur-draped women. The grand opening was held August 31, 1929, by invitation only. Each gold-trimmed invitation was embellished with a blue velvet ribbon. Dinner was to be served at 7.30 p.m. and dancing to follow. Membership in the country club was open only to those who could, quote, afford to gamble, end quote, which excluded salaried people. Ornamental iron gates opened to the 10-acre tract where a winding drive led to the club. Lights from approaching vehicles could be seen long before they reached the club. The crowning glory of the property was the one-story turreted building which housed the dining areas, dancing floors, and gambling rooms. Thick carpeting, gilded mirrors, tapestries, elegant fountains, and statues adorned the rooms. There was even a statue of Joan of Arc, riding triumphantly on a steed. Tuxedo-clad waiters, bodyguards, and parking attendants were on hand to meet every need. Art Hicks and his Biltmore aristocrats, who had performed in New York and Cincinnati, the Muchis Orchestra and Mike Burke's Orchestra were regular entertainers along with dancing girls and various artists. An eight-course dinner was usually served after 6 o'clock p.m. to hungry guests prepared by well-trained chefs. Long, luxurious cars from the upper crust of St. Louis, Kansas, and Chicago 
brought well-dressed and powerful wheeler and dealers with their beautifully adorned women wrapped in silks, furs, and jewelry to be pampered, served, wined, and dined in complete comfort and anonymity. Huge sums of money and gallons of illegal liquor poured through its well-guarded premises. St. Louis Justice of the Peace Jimmy Miller was no stranger to controversy. Born in the predominantly Irish section of St. Louis, known as Kerry Patch, he rose to power under the mentorship of former Justice of the Peace Jimmy Miles, who had a rough and thorough hold on the Fourth Ward. By the age of 14, Miller ran errands for Miles during election time and became familiar with some of the seedier methods of the political machine. Later, Miles set him up in his own saloon, where members of Egan's Rats, the Irish Prohibition-era gang that ruled the St. Louis streets, regularly met. Headlines from the 1934 election labeled his campaign as, quote, vote him like a machine, end quote, and claimed he had judges and top officials in his pocket, which prevented his prosecution when tried for voter fraud. At one point, Miller was pictured in the St. Louis Star and Times receiving a platinum watch and chain studded with 107 diamonds and adorned with pearls from newly elected Fourth Ward officials, including the Clerk of Court for Criminal Correction, Market Master of the Union Market, and a circuit judge. By the time the Great Depression began to dampen the success of the club, Harry Hickory Slim Spelford, a known mafia bookie and known associate of Scarface Al Capone, was brought in as manager at the Biltmore. Hickory Slim had quite a reputation prior to his tenure at Biltmore. He made his millions gambling. He and his wife were living in a swanky Chicago hotel in 1925 when he was kidnapped, allegedly by the Mafia. Rumor had it he negotiated with his captors for his release. Newspaper accounts claimed he paid $130,000, but he quipped he only paid $14. In 1931, Belford testified for the defense in Al Capone's tax evasion trial in an attempt to paint Capone as an inveterate gambler who had lots of money but lost it all on the races. With the introduction of Belford as manager, it appeared the Biltmore had ties to Capone's operation. Although liquor and gambling were illegal, the Biltmore had a surefire way to outsmart the police raids. Guards armed with floodlights and machine guns watched from the high towers, reportedly to discourage robberies. And the building itself was split into two sections, with one side in Jefferson County and the other in St. Louis County. Rumors that the mob had law enforcement officials in both jurisdictions in their pockets when raids were imminent, they'd simply move the illegal items over to whichever county was out of the jurisdiction of the law enforcement making the raid. In addition, 
there was a seven-foot-high gunmetal reinforced door which led to the high-stakes gambling room. Once closed and locked, there was no entrance into that room. Newspaper accounts claimed that it was an open secret that the club was operating an illegal liquor and gambling operation, but among its members were the rollers and shakers of business and politics in St. Louis. Neither the Jefferson County Sheriff nor the prosecuting attorney wanted any part of digging too deeply into that hole. However, in 1927, the payoffs ceased. Feeling cocky about their lack of accountability, the management withheld payment. The result was a joint raid in which both counties joined together and closed the doors, but only temporarily. Despite Jefferson County politicians vowing to shut it down, it reopened that season. In 1937, the Jefferson County Grand Jury submitted a report in the Tri-City Independent newspaper published in Festus, Missouri, August 27, 1937. Part of it read, There remains no secret about the prevalence of lawlessness in Jefferson County. Open and flagrant violation of the laws of Missouri confront every citizen at almost every turn. Sleuthing and secret investigation are rendered unnecessary because evidence may be had for the looking. Within the week, the St. Louis Press has specifically referred to Jefferson County in connection with the operation of unlawful enterprises. There is no sound reason for such conditions, and the people of Jefferson County should refuse to accept all insincere excuses. A recent report made by the State Highway Patrol and other state investigators reveals what practically everyone in the county already knew concerning the operation of the Biltmore Country Club on Highway 30 in Jefferson County. The report states that, quote, investigators found 14 three-cent slot machines, three 25-cent slot machines, four dice tables, one blackjack game, four roulette wheels, and a chuck-a-luck table at the Biltmore Country Club on Gravoy Road, just south of Fenton. In addition to the Biltmore Country Club, the patrol reported that 188 slot machines are operating in 89 other places in Jefferson County. End quote. And there is evidence, it is said, that liquor is being sold unlawfully in many places along the highways of the county. The malignant growth of the rackets in this county has been so great in recent years that it now threatens to undermine the entire structure of our county government. Action to preserve some semblance of confidence in public officials is long overdue. It is past time that somebody did something. Surely some member of the jury will have noticed during the past year some of the aforementioned violations of the law. It seems almost impossible that no member of the jury will be aware of conditions which now exist here. 
But if such should prove to be the case, as it did last year, then there is opened an opportunity to those who desire proper law enforcement to appear before the grand jury and request an investigation of these conditions and aid the grand jury in discovering that there is widespread disregard for the law and order in Jefferson County. End of article. In 1938, Robert Kleinschmidt ran against Edward Eversall for the circuit judge of Jefferson County. Kleinschmidt ran on a ticket fighting against Eversall's lack of action against clubs such as the Biltmore. It was one of the most hotly contested fights in recent election history. And Eversall easily won the election, however, not without quite a bit of fight from Kleinschmidt and his followers. There is an article that was written in the Jefferson County Republican, published in DeSoto, Missouri, October 27, 1938, that was asking questions that had been raised in the last article. In this, the writer says, Governor orders gambling drive in 37 counties. Stark and McKittrick instruct prosecutors to eliminate slot machines and other devices. The writer is obviously writing to Mr. Eversall, who is a candidate for office and is asking about what he's done to shut down the Biltmore Club. He says, result of inquiry by highway patrol, and he talks a little bit about that last article. He says, the report as to Jefferson County listed 90 places as operating machines and estimated they had about 188 devices in use. The report named the Biltmore Country Club as the largest operator in Jefferson County. So, he goes on to say, Why didn't you take action, Mr. Eversall? Did you prefer the affidavit of Reverend West, who could not have gained admission to the Biltmore Club to the report of our own state patrol? You admit in your published affidavit that Reverend West came to see you and that you demanded that he make an affidavit. Do you mean to say that upon the affidavit of the minister, you would have warrants issued and organized gamblers arrested, while upon the order of Governor Stark and Attorney General McKittrick and the evidence furnished by the state patrol, no warrants were issued? What are the malicious insinuations about these questions, Mr. Eversall? He goes on to ask another question, quote, how did it happen that in the two years you have been prosecuting attorney of Jefferson County, including six terms of circuit court, you have actually tried only four cases in said circuit court, less than one per term, resulting in two convictions and two acquittals, end quote. Mr. Eversall, in the last paragraph of your published affidavit, you state, quote, I have invariably given courteous and cooperative attention to all persons making complaints. Why not publish your letter to the governor following his order to you in August 1937 so that the voters may see how 
courteously you offered to cooperate with him, or did you write to the Attorney General, and if so, why not publish it? What courteous cooperation did you give the State Patrol? So he goes on to say, Mr. Eversall, I call upon you now and before the election on behalf of all law-abiding citizens of this circuit, of all political parties, to obey the order of Governor Stark and Attorney General McKittrick. He addresses the voters and says, Mr. Eversall has accused me of mudslinging in behalf to the Republican candidate for circuit judge. This is a letter from Joseph Forshee, chairman of the Republican Judicial Committee of the 21st Judicial Circuit, and it was a political advertisement. After the death of Jimmy Miller in 1946, Joe Red O'Donnell acquired the Biltmore. O'Donnell was a known felon, having served three years of a five-year sentence for burglary at age 18. In 1927, he was charged with assault to kill when he and Dave Klegman got into an altercation with professional bondsman Clarence J. Hicks. A bullet from O'Donnell's gun struck a passerby named Roy Tyson when Hicks tried to knock the gun from O'Donnell's hand. He was not sentenced for that crime, however. O'Donnell ran in the high-stakes gambling circles, Apparently, he had some success in that he was able to obtain the Biltmore, and he made an attempt to reopen it, and even was accused of attempting to bribe a sheriff candidate $5,000 to allow him to operate, but was refused. O'Donnell was said to visit the property once a year in his pink Cadillac. It was during one of these visits that O'Donnell suffered a heart attack and died, crashing his car into a tree on the property in September 1952. Later, Ed and Marie Campbell bought the building and tried to clean up its reputation. They opened a restaurant serving chicken and steaks. Highway 30, which was still Old Gravoy Road, was still a two-lane road leading to small rural communities. There wasn't much draw to bring in customers, and they sold the restaurant in 1972 to Don Winters from Cedar Hill. His business included country music dancing. It was popular with the very crowd who would have never been allowed inside its doors in the early days. On the morning of the fire, investigators found two metal cans. It appeared the fire was started in the center section of the building where records were kept. Winters indicated that he hoped to rebuild, but discovered that the insurance policy had lapsed and Winters lost the property. According to several sources, Winters became a recluse and eventually ended up in an Arkansas jail on a trespassing charge. Lack of bed space prevented him from being transferred to a state mental facility where he might have received proper care. Winters died on New Year's Day 2003 under mysterious circumstances. His case spurred a federal hearing on how mentally ill prisoners are treated in Arkansas. 
Today, the only trace that the Biltmore even existed is in the name of the hill where modern businesses operate, 300 Biltmore. Gravoy Road was later expanded into Highway 30, and the rattle and roar of heavy traffic has replaced the tinkle of crystal glasses and the music of strings and wind instruments. We can only imagine what secrets burned away along with the grand old building. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Moonshine and Mobsters. The Biltmore Supper Club bought to you by Jefferson County Library located at Northwest Branch, 5680 Highway PP, High Ridge, Missouri. For more information, call us at 636-677-8186 or email mhudson at jeffcolibe.org. Join us again next Tuesday at 5 o'clock p.m. as we explore more of the Prohibition-era intrigue in Jefferson County as we discuss the bootlegger murder, Andrew Dick, 1921. For earlier episodes, you can find us on your favorite podcast venue or look for a link on our library webpage, www.jeffcolibe.org under the Genealogy and History tab on the left of the page. Scroll down to find the Murder and Mayhem in Jefferson County logo, which will take you to the podcast links. For more details and photographs relating to this and earlier podcasts, visit facebook.com backslash jclgenealogy, G-E-N-E-A-L-O-G-Y.